Jonah chapter 4, but before we hear from the Lord, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for his blessing uh, upon it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, what a privilege we have being your people now and being in your presence. And we pray, dear Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and open hearts to receive from you now as you speak to us. Lord, we pray, arrest our attentions and indeed remove all of those distractions that swirl around in our minds. Help us, Father, to hear and to receive. Help us to bend our lives and our wills towards you. We pray that the instrument of your word this morning and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Please give, do give your attention to the reading of God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, this what I, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade so they could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it, made, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there were more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right, do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So for the reading of God's word, indeed the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. <clears throat> When I was in seminary a number of years ago, in a very real sense, you become cut off from the rest of the world, uh, from all the things that are going on because of all the work that you have to do. Um, but we need to be informed, right, nevertheless. And after seminary, I had to tr really try to plug back in and to get up to speed with all the things that were going on in this world in which we live. And some things had changed in my time in seminary. Some things indeed had changed. Um, but wickedness is always present. It just changes some particulars. 
And some things just don't change. We think of the issue of the sanctity of life and the reality that over a million unborn human persons a year uh, are put to death through abortion. And not only that, but there are zealots who are fighting like the devil uh, to make that legal and to keep it from going on or to keep it going on. Uh, There are radical deviants, radical deviant lifestyles that are ever increasing and more and more aggressive and more and more forceful, militantly forcing forcing culture to accept, even approve against our beliefs. Not content to be left alone in their deviant lifestyles, but destroying anyone who disagrees with them. Not only disconcerting terrible things that are going on in our own culture, but especially then as I reflected at that time, coming out of seminary, in a post-9-11 world, in a shrinking world, terrible things to contend with in other cultures as well. Uh, There was, of course, you will all remember, and still exist, those unthinkable, satanic wickedness, the culture of death groups uh, like the terrorists of ISIS, groups that indeed laud and praise and rejoice at the beheading of Christians, Again, there were years those uh, that were more more prevalent in those years while I was in seminary. The things, these things are going on. There are people, there are religions, there are cultures, there are nations who would kill us just for being Americans. And it was even worse for us because we are Christian Americans. And as you think about that and you respond to those those horrible things in your in your minds, what is going through your heart? What is going through your minds as you think about these evils in the world? What is the reflex of your heart? And what would this prophet of God in the 8th century, Jonah, what would be his attitude uh, uh, towards Nineveh or Assyria? We've seen so far in this book of Jonah, uh, the the rebellious prophet in chapter 1, the repentant prophet in chapter 2, the renewed prophet in chapter 3, when we see this morning, we'll look at the refreshed, I'm sorry, the resentful prophet in chapter 4. And so I want to jump right into the first four verses, and we see the first point there in your outline of your bulletin uh, from the text, and that is pity is pathetic. Pity is pathetic from the prophet's perspective. Pity is pathetic. We see this prophet, this pouting prophet, this self-righteous prophet who sees God's mercy as weakness. He sees God's pity as pathetic. There in verse 1 it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why he made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, hesed, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Where it says there in verse 1 that Jonah was greatly, it it displeased Jonah. It says he was greatly displeased. And the word there is the word that we looked at in chapter 3 is evil. Literally, it's the word evil. Literally what it says is, and it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. And he became hot. He burned. And why is Jonah hot and burning and seeing this as a great evil? 
Because of God's grace to the Ninevites. The worst thing to Jonah is that the Nineveh, that, that's this city, repented and, sh- and God showed mercy to them. God is merciful. And Nineveh seeks him. In the end of verse 1, it says, he was angry. Again, he was hot. He was burning. And this is a wordplay on what we'll see the discussion at the end of this chapter. Jonah, in his displeasure, uh, we see here it's the only second, only the second time uh, in the book that Jonah prays. The first time Jonah prays was from the belly of the great fish, recall. Jonah prays from this belly, which ended in this glorious declaration, recall. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But in the second prayer that we see here in Jonah 4, it differs greatly in tone and content and desire. First, Jonah is uh, celebrating God's faithfulness, right? And he holds up this same thing that in 2 Jonah he prays, he complains about, and he grumbles about. Your loving kindness is great. Your chesed is great. But now when it's applied to his enemies, he doesn't like it any longer. It's the same saving nature of God that makes him hot. God sends his prophet out and many are saved. And you think that this prophet of the Lord would rejoice. But no, he does not rejoice. He responds in anger, in burning, with a death wish, asking God to take him out. You see the irony throughout all of this? The first time he prayed, what was he prayed, What was he saved from? Death. Now he sees others saved by the same grace of God from death. And he says, it would be better for me to die. Take my life. Well, he could have died a little while ago, a couple of chapters ago. But God saved him when he cried out to him. And God has hurt others and saved them. And therefore, Jonah wants to die. And this is just like a spoiled child who's ecstatic about a gift that he's given given until he sees that everyone else got a gift also. Then all of a sudden, it's not so good. Jonah is no longer fond of God's mercy now that God has freely given it to others, this mercy. And then finally, God's response to Jonah's displeasure. He says this, Jonah, are you justified in being angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Do you have a right to be upset? And these questions expose the prophet's heart. They expose to him. They make known what is really going on inside of Jonah. What his real sins are. What his frustration is all about. Then the next point we see, number two, is the, 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 the prophet's personal pity. In verses 5 to 10, the prophet's personal pity. Pity. We first saw Jonah's attitude. It was towards God. Pity is pathetic. And now we see that Jonah starts to see God's mercy, that it is only rightfully his. It's his own personal pity. And notice the first scene of the narrative, how it ends with God asking the prophet and direct uh, direct question. And then the next scene opens with Jonah getting up and storming off. Basically, he says, I don't have to answer you because I'm irritated with you. Again, like that spoiled child. The creature telling the creator, I don't want to talk to you right now because of this awful thing that you have just done before me. And he storms off to the east and he sits in the desert hills of Nineveh. 
which is modern-day Iraq. It is very dry. It is very hot. It is very arid. The text makes it clear that it is an unbearable place to be because there was no shade. There was no cover. We know this because Jonah had to try and make a covering for himself. And he sits there and hears the prophet of God fuming at God. Right, The prophet of God fuming at the Lord. It says he sits down to wait and see just what would happen to the city. We aren't told exactly what he was waiting for. But from his attitude, it seems that he's waiting for God to change his mind yet again. He's waiting and hoping that he will witness another Sodom and Gomorrah incident because of his hate for this for these people. He's waiting for fire from the sky, anything to consume the city, so he'll feel justified again. That God is not some weak pushover, as Jonah seems to see him. He seems to see God here as just that. And there he sits. In verse 1, we are told he is hot, he is burning. Now, literally, he is hot and he is burning. And God is going to use this situation to teach a lesson to Jonah. In verse 6, it says that God ordains a plant. He appoints a plant. And this plant is a physical parable. A story Jonah can have feelings for and watch and experience because it is detached from his own circumstances. And it will be used much like the prophet Nathan did to King David that we heard in our Old Testament reading. Nathan tells David the story. And so David can rightly... Uh, evaluate the situation about a rich man with many flocks and a poor man who had a single lamb that was like a child to that man. He loved this lamb. And the rich man takes that lamb and prepares it for a meal for a traveler. And David is outraged. He's outraged because he thinks that it's just a story. And then Nathan tells him what? David, you are that man. And the parable exposes his own sin. God saves Jonah here through this plant. He saves him from his discomfort. And again, the word there for discomfort is evil. He saves him from this great evil in verse 6. And he ordains, appoints this plant like he appointed the fish. And it gives him living shade. Now Jonah is shaded and he is comforted. Shade is a matter of life and death and the great heat. I don't know if you've experienced that kind of dry, intense heat where there is no cover. My family used to live in Nevada. And one time we were outside for too long and I had had too little to drink. And I had heat stroke. Very real thing, a very dangerous thing. Water is critical. Cover is critical for survival. When we look at the situation that Jonah's in at this time, we see the humor there in verse 6. In the poles that we see, right? Jonah is overjoyed. He has a great joy because of this plant. In verse 1, he was greatly displeased. But in verse 6, see the opposite extreme. He is full of joy and gladness because he has gotten some shade. And then verse 7, God takes back the plant by appointing a worm that comes and kills the plant. He ordains this worm to go and do so. And Jonah is again greatly distressed. He is very unhappy. And then God appoints one more time. Now he appoints, he ordains 
the scorching wind, the scorching east wind. And these winds blow through the desert heat and they pick up heat and momentum as they go. It's like some of you may have heard if you've ever been to the west coast, the Santa Ana winds when it's already hot and the winds blow and all of a sudden you get blasted with this 50 mile an hour furnace-like wind. It's unbearable. And this, of course, is adding greatly to Jonah's discomfort, but he considers a great evil. And so God sent the worm to take the plants. Then he sent the wind to blast the heat. And there's Jonah, hot on the inside and now hot on the outside. He's burning in and out, inside and out. And what is his response? It's the same as before. He wishes to die. In verse 8, it is better for me to die than to live. And God asks the exact same question again. Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Are you justified, Jonah, in your anger? And the author sets up here in these two scenes that are nearly identical. And the purpose is to get this point across. Jonah has just seen what? He's just seen... 125,000 people repent and turn from their sins and come to God their maker. What is Jonah's response? He's so upset that he wants to die. And God says, do you have a right to be angry, Jonah? In the very next scene, this plant grows. It shades him. He's very happy. And it dies. And he is now in grief. He's grieving and he wants to die. And God asks him the same question. Do you have a right to be angry? And we should be noticing here in this episode, in this uh, telling of events, the repetition of words and scenes and questions. This is there's given with intention. God is trying to teach him something with this second story that he should have learned already uh, when he saw the first. Right? When God acts to spare Nineveh, Jonah is exceedingly displeased. When the plant comes, he's exceedingly happy. And then he's angry when the plant is destroyed just like when he was angry at God saving the sinners in Nineveh. And he is angry. He is angry in both, enough to want to die. And in asking God in both, in, uh, in both of these instances, God asks, do you have a right to be so angry? And as the section concludes, we see our third point there from the text, verses 9 to 11. And that is God's providential prerogative. God's providential prerogative. Verses 9 to 11, and that is just this, that God has the right to be who He is and to extend His mercy to whomever He desires. Notice God is trying to get through to Jonah as He despairs over this plant. And it's really comical. It is so absurd what is going on. Jonah is so distraught over this plant's death that he wants to die. He responds to God's question, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah says, yes, I have the right. I'm so justified in my anger that I want to die. And so the second lesson to Jonah is not a parable, but it's just plain logic. Verses 9 to 11, right? How did the plant come? What did you do to bring it? Did you work or merit it somehow? Then verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it to grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. His point is, what did you do for this plant? It was short-lived, so what? Why are you so upset, Jonah? You pity this plant. 
And here we have the heart of the prophet Jonah. He says, you had compassion on this plant, Jonah. Don't I have the right to have compassion on whomever I want? Isn't it my prerogative? You had pity over it. You wept over it. You wanted to die because of something you had nothing to do with. Verse 10, he goes on, how much more should I have compassion over these 120,000 people? A great city, full of animals as well. Jonah, do you really have the right to be upset that I spared Nineveh, this great city? Because you seem to be very concerned and upset about this plant that you did nothing for. And we see how out of kilter that is and how absurd it is. Notice the word it uses in verse 10 of chapter 4. It says the plant perishes. And this perishing of the plant is what is driving Jonah's pity. The book tells us this, and he uses this word to bring to our recollection again, way back in chapter 1, verse 6. Remember what is going on there, how the story begins. The captain, right, the captain of this ship has great concern. What is his concern? That people might perish, right? The same word used of this plant, perished. Jonah is concerned that this plant perished. In chapter 1, the captain is concerned that the people might perish in the sea. And in that same chapter, chapter 1, we see the crew, they are concerned in verse 14 that a person, Jonah, that he might perish. And they don't want to do what he has asked them and throw him overboard. Then in chapter 3, we see in verse 9, the king of Nineveh has great concern. His great concern is what? that his people might perish. They might perish. But notice the only thing that the prophet is concerned about at all over anything perishing is when this plant that's shading him dies, when it perishes. He had no concern for any of those people all the way through this text. He had no pity. He had no compassion. And this is the first time that he's expressing concern for anybody or anything. And it's a plant that he had nothing to do with. So God puts him to that final question. He repeats, do you have a right to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry? And then finally he asks, don't I have the right to have compassion on Nineveh? You see, God has built this all up to ask Jonah this very question. Is God allowed to have compassion on people or is he not? Is that his prerogative or is it not? Is God allowed to show mercy or not, Jonah? Isn't that God's right? God begins to list all the reasons why Jonah should be concerned in verse 10 there. He says, Nineveh has 120,000 people who bear my image, by the way. And they are so morally corrupt, they are so spiritually and morally bankrupt, they can't tell their, their right from their left. They are so steeped in wickedness. They are just depraved. And you're concerned about this plant? Do you care at least if I tell you there's also a lot of animals there? Maybe then you'll be concerned. You seem to be very concerned about the plants and the environment. There's lots of animals there, lots of cows, Jonah. Shouldn't you care? If not about the people, how about these animals? Don't I have a right to care? Because I planted these people there. I made them to bear my image. And I'll give them, I've given them that that they may reflect my glory. And I've made these animals, and you didn't even make this plant 
but you cared, you, you cried for it, you wept about it. God's purpose is, of course, to show Jonah's hypocrisy in all of this. Because Jonah rejoiced in God's mercy when it was to him a sinner. But there's no room for rejoicing when it's other sinners who were brought to salvation by the same great mercy of God. Jonah wants nothing to do with it. And the book ends, oddly enough, famously, with no resolution. It's just a question. We're never told how Jonah responds. We don't know what Jonah did with this final question from God, if his attitude or anything changed. We're left wondering with this tension that is revealed from this story. What is the, what is the resolution? We wonder if Jonah ever gets this message. And I wonder if he cares or he learns to care at all for these people, these sinners who are lost in their ways, who, who, who are lost and dying. And I wonder if he ever learns to compare himself to them, the prophet to the Ninevites, the one born in the covenant, tutored under the covenant, under the law of God. Yet when God commands him to do something, he rebels against God, and almost at the cost of his life and other people's lives as well. Does he ever realize that he is joined to Nineveh in more ways than he thought? That he is a sinner just like them, and yet God showed him mercy. Can't he also show them mercy? And I wonder if he ever desired to pray for Nineveh, to see them continue in repentance, to see them join to the covenant people of God. And we have to wonder, was he ever moved? Was he ever moved and wept like Christ did, like Christ had compassion on that hill as he overlooked the city, waiting for the destruction? Did he ever raise up like Jesus when Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Did Jonah ever say, Oh, Nineveh, oh, Nineveh, how often I wanted to gather you in like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. Was Jonah ever like the greater than Jonah that we read about in Matthew 12? Was he ever like that? Jesus, this Jesus who had mercy and compassion on those who were wayward and vile and black with sin, knowing that they were lost in sin, dead and depraved in more ways and to a greater degree than they could ever comprehend. And even Christ, knowing his own people, were rejecting him and seeking to kill him. He is heartbroken because they could not see that after uh, this offer that was before them, that grace could be theirs. Our Lord and Savior was so broken in that mercy that he was willing to have his body broken that he might redeem sinners from this position. That he might bring them into fellowship with their God and that he might save wayward Ninevites like you and like me. He was willing to spare no expense in order to bring his people into the fold of God. So much so that he took wrath upon his own father, the the wrath of his own father that was deserved by us. Well, I do wonder if Jonah ever got it. As you probably do, but I wonder if we ever get it. Do we get it? Do we care about the wicked? When you hear and think about all these things in our culture and all the things, all the evil that is championed in our culture. And when you hear, when you heard of a nation 
and a religion that is trying to destroy us or how that wicked reality is politicized in our country? Was there ever even an ounce of compassion in your heart as you think about these things? Or do we only cry like Jonah for justice? That's the reflex of our flesh, right? Take them out, Lord. Take them out. And you know, Jonah was half right. He knew that sin deserved judgment, even as we are aware of that. And we are right to hate sin and to hate what God hates. But there also should be that same heart in us that is in our Lord who had compassion on those who deserved judgment. They truly deserved it. Is our greater desire for our enemies, Christ's enemies, to be exposed by God and judged on the last day? Or do we have a great desire to see them come to faith in Christ? Do we not see that we are not so unlike these same sinners that protest for these things, uh, that they have us repulsed when we think about them? We are not so unlike them. For in fact, we were once them, right? We were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, that verse that <clears throat> we read often. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, idolaters, nor adulterers, no men who practice homosexuality, no thieves, nor greedy, uh, greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says, and it was while we were in that state that Christ died for us and Christ sent his spirit to make us new. And that's why Paul goes on in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Praise God, it was in that former state that God showed that side that upset Jonah so much. When God showed himself to you that he was compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You who belong to him, you who name his name, you who are united to him forever, he commands us. In Romans 6, 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself so. How glorious. How glorious it is that God showed himself to us that he was compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that chesed, uh, loyal love, loving kindness. For this truly is the heart of our God and Savior Jesus Christ who wept over the multitudes. He cares about lost sinners. He calls us who are united to him by faith to care as well. This is your God, full of grace, the one who showed you grace and mercy. Can you accept him as such? And will you follow him as such? For this is our calling to do so. I am right there with you, right there with all of you who reflexively in the flesh, cry out, justice! We are right. We know what is evil and wrong. I want them to pay. I want them stopped. And brothers and sisters, it is only 
by the Spirit of God working in us that we can pray for mercy. We can cry out mercy for them, Lord, that God would destroy their wicked hearts, the wicked hearts of those who hate us and who hate him and give them life. We are weak, but cling to Christ, hold on to him and beg him to give you a heart that he's promised is yours already, a heart full of his love, a heart that is compassionate, that does want mercy. The only way to to have compassion and love of Christ is to admit that it is not native to you. You can't do it. You don't do it. We won't do it. But your your Savior does. And he did. And he showed that love to you, brothers and sisters. Only by trusting in him will you begin to love as he loves. There's no other way. And if you are his... He will work in you. He will grow you in trust. Trust that he will one day make all things new. All that vengeance, all all that his vengeance, uh, and that his vengeance is perfect and holy and right. And it is for him to execute alone. uh, Trust him, dear brothers and sisters. Trust him. Think about these things when you think about missions around the world too that we send out from home into strange places, faraway places. Think of our missionaries. May we pray for the nations. May we long for their salvation. May we love even our neighbors who fight against our God and rage against our Savior. May we love them. And may that love be shown in our lives and in our praying for God to stop them by giving them life and sparing them from the punishment that they deserve. Always remembering, right? that we too deserve that punishment. May God convert our enemies and even they may bring, and that even they may bring glory to our great Savior. For we know with certainty that it is the great Savior who will conquer all of his and our enemies. Praise God Almighty. Amen. Let's pray. Our almighty and loving God, we delight to give you praise. We thank you for your providence in our lives and for our beloved Savior who gave his life for our sins and rose again for our justification. We ask, dear Lord, that you would help us to have mercy, to see all of our lives through the lens of what we've been given in Christ and the mercy and compassion of our King and Savior. Give us maturity, dear Lord, and grace and care for the lost even the most wicked sinner. Help us to pray for the destruction of their evil hearts and for God's love to bring them to Jesus, to give them a new heart that lives for him. And so, Lord, we pray this morning for our missionaries around the world, those who labor out in uh, sometimes hostile places. We pray for the Kowachis, Lord. We pray that uh, you would provide for them the support that they need. We pray for their plans as they... Uh, seek to follow you and settle in as they relocate. Father, we pray for the Natrigales as well, for their work in Belgium. We pray for the Thorntons especially. We pray for the peace and stability in Ukraine. And we pray, Lord, that you would provide for the necessary funds needed to keep this, this mission work going. We pray, Lord, that you would protect these missionaries and their families and that you would give them energy to faithfully labor for your glory in the places that they are serving. Lord, we do pray for your word as it goes out in the world, that it would have its full effect, 
that would bring your people in. Father, we pray for the congregation of your people this morning as we face various struggles in this life that we'd fight to live in such a way that matches the profession of our lips. We pray for those suffering this morning here who are under physical pain and physical suffering. We ask that you would grant them relief and mercy and freedom from that suffering. If that is your will, Lord, we pray. If it is, make them whole, restore, and heal them. Yet whatever your perfect will, dear Lord, we ask that you would draw them close unto yourself and that they would abide their suffering well and that they would know that they have a perfect, gentle, loving Lord who cares for them beyond all comprehension and that they would know with a certainty that they will be made new. Father, we pray for those who are struggling in, in particular sin this morning. We ask for release from these things. We praise you that you don't give the full picture of our brokenness to us all at once. For if you did, Lord, we would be undone. We thank you for growing us, for your patience with our slowness. Father, grant us faith that we would believe you when you say concerning us that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Lord, we pray for the households represented here. Lord, we pray that you would forgive our failure in these various roles. Grant to us that we would long to rightly be who you have made us in these roles. Lord, we pray for our children. Lord, we pray that you would bless them and keep them. We praise you for the Prokratsky's uh, um, baby. Lord, we pray that you protect Becky and this covenant child that you're knitting together in her womb. Lord, we, we thank you and we pray that you would bless them indeed. What a wonder and blessing our covenant children to us, and even more so to you who love them beyond our understanding. Lord, we pray for your people, whatever state, uh, state they may be in, that you would bless us and that you would seek, give us hearts that seek you in all things. We pray for your people, whatever hardships we may be going through in this life, that we would see you, our God and King, our faithful and gracious and good to us and that you love us with a perfect love. Dear Lord, we ask, work through us, even us, to be the light of Christ in this world. Grant that we would be faithful in the stations you have placed us. Strengthen, we pray, Lord, our families and our churches for our good and for your glory. Would you pray for the officers here at Providence? Pray that you would give them wisdom and integrity and openness and love to care for your people. Bless them in their work. Father, we remember specifically our sister Lori Baumgarten this morning. We pray that she would continue to grow deeper uh, that is her desire to grow deep in your word and in comprehending your immeasurable love and your immeasurable wisdom. Father, we pray for the Bell family as well. Pray that they would be faithful to you in all things. Pray that you would continue to grant to Doug thankfulness for all of your blessings. Would you pray, Lord, for the Byler family as well. Continue to grow and to lead them. Assist them in the rearing of their children. Encourage them and enable them to develop in their family worship. And we pray, Lord, that you, you would use that to instill in them the habit and delight of worshiping you. Lord, we pray for all of us. Be merciful unto us. Provide for our physical needs. Strengthen us spiritually. Keep us from growing satisfied. Keep us from growing fearful. But strengthen us and conform us evermore into the image of our King, your Son, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray all these things praying now even as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.